Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone is having a wonderful week so far. A lot to get into around the world of Hollywood today. From the last couple of days, I want to get into the first trailer for the brand new Disney Plus MCU show, the first one of 2022, and it will be Moon Knight. I'm also going to be getting into our first look at the Batgirl costume, the takeaways that I had for the Screen Actors Guild nominations that came out last week, and a whole lot more. But the first thing that I do want to get into, as I usually like to do, whether I start my podcast on a Monday or if I do start on a Wednesday, But to kind of kick off the week and get into the week, whenever I do my first podcast, I usually like to talk about the weekend box office. And this weekend, I think to no surprise to a lot of people, Spider-Man No Way Home was dethroned for the first time since it was released back in December 17th of last year. And it was Ghostface himself that did the slashing on the film as it took the box office crown for the number one spot. And to, I think, a lot of people's surprise in the fact by how much this film actually made in the the long run, especially since it was Martin Luther King weekend and hopefully everyone had a great extended weekend as well. But when it comes to this three-day, four-day weekend to kick off January, pre-pandemic, when you look at Bad Boys for Life, it kind of revealed something where if you put the right movie in around that weekend that people want to see, they will go out to see it. And I think that happened with Scream this past weekend as it did really, really well. It made around $30 million on its three-day weekend. And when you look at the four-day weekend, it did $33 million over the four-day. And in the three-day, it did $30 million, like I said. So not a big difference. It was only three $3 million swing. But still, I think when you look at the, the box office, when you look at the marketplace right now, really, other than Spider-Man No Way Home and Sing 2 has been doing well considering where the family market has been no other films have been doing that well because there's not a lot of material out there that will entice people enough to go out to the movie theaters right now especially with this omicron variant that is still spreading around the world and around the country right now so people are still now a little hesitant to go to the to the theaters right now but again if you get the right movie in there people will go see it and again if you get movies that appeal more to the younger demographic like a horror film does and scream has a bit appeal to the younger teenage demographic for a long time since really 1996 when it, when the first one came out it's been appealing to the same demographic just for generations and generations now so you you get that in there and, and I think it was able to work some magic and it didn't do gangbusters where it made 70 80 million dollars but 30 million to 33 million dollars for a film that only with a budget before marketing and advertising was around 25 million dollars to make that's still really really good and I think in the long run depending on the legs that this film has it could really turn some kind of a profit for paramount that gives it a reason to greenlight sequels in the future and i would be happy to see that because i didn't give a review but i really enjoyed this scream film i thought it was a great kind of continuation of what we know scream to be but also bringing in some new cool elements as well some new rules when it comes to being kind of a a meta take on the horror franchise on the movie industry itself so i think they did a really good job with that angle and I think they did a a really marvelous job of honoring Wes Craven's legacy who passed
passed away in 2015 and it kind of derailed any momentum this franchise might have had at having a future because Wes Craven did all four of the movies and the cast was endeared to him. He was a part of the main catalyst that kicked off this this phenomenon that this franchise became and revitalizing slasher films and so it it didn't look good for the franchise but then you bring in the creators of radio silence and the and they did ready or not and and paramount who brought the the rights for the property from the now debunked weinstein company they wanted to do something different with it and they trusted these guys and and they did a really good job with the film and it seems like audiences agreed with that it had a b plus cinema score which is for a horror film very very good and i think it's going to be very interesting to see the legs that this movie has moving forward because there's not a lot of of competition really coming out over the next couple of weeks until February 4th when you have Moonfall, the new Roland Emmerich film, and also the return of the Jackass franchise. So really until then... The only other competition would be if Scream does fall off in the next couple of weeks. Spider-Man could reclaim that number one spot again. So I don't think this is the last time that we'll see Spidey not have the number one spot. So just be aware of that coming in the future. But in terms of what Scream did this weekend, it is a improvement over what happened in 2011, where the fourth Scream movie only made 18 and $19 million its opening weekend, which kind of showed that even though the franchise was still popular it didn't really take at the time with people to continue to see more of these movies it did still around par with the with the first two sequels with two and three the second film made 32 million dollars the third one made 34 so when you take into account even the three or or four day weekend account it's still right around that space even if you take the four day it eclipses the, the the second screen film to be number two all time when it comes to these to these sequels. It also had the best four-day opening for a horror film on Martin Luther King weekend, and it was Mama, who was directed by, I think, a a little-known filmmaker who did did some really cool things before, but in terms of horror, it is the highest-grossing opening weekend for this spot. Also, when you look at the pandemic era horror films, it did not, it didn't do the same numbers as these, but still pretty, pretty well to get to number three, number four in the spot where Halloween Kills is still number one in the pandemic era and making $49.4 million last October. And then the what, the first film to really kind of kick off this pandemic era of re- revitalization of the box office and theatrical movie going was A Quiet Place Part Two, which made $47.5 million, which at that time period, especially in, in late May, Memorial Day weekend, first one of the first films out, did $47.5 million, is a really good number to do when you're questioning what people's mindsets will be going into the pandemic. So again, I think it showcases that horror is still a main draw. And it seems that when you look at the quote-unquote surefire bets of the pandemic era, comic book movies have been the ones that have been spearheading that charge, but also horror films have been doing it as well. And the one thing, again, that they have in common is appealing to a younger demographic, which feels a little bit more comfortable going to the movie theaters right now and seeing films and whether it's abiding by the protocols and, and being okay being in public places. Whereas, again, when you look at, when I read down the rest of this box, Box office, 
films like West Side Story, Kingsman, The 355, more adult-leading movies aren't doing so well because uh, more people within that age range are going to be affected by the pandemic and, 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 and COVID-19 and this new variant and are feeling a little bit more uneasy going back to the theaters at this point. So I think th- theater exhibitionists, AMC, Regal, mom-and-pop local theaters – I think they all see what is going to be kind of the driving force. Same thing with Hollywood in general and what the studios see is that these are the movies that are going to be spearheading the, the, the charge in the direction. And there's enough pattern at this point to see what's working right now and, and what's something that is a little bit more of a risk. And maybe those more adult-like films go to streaming services, whether it's to Hulu or Amazon or even Netflix maybe. And you see a lot more of these big budgeted movies that appeal to these demographics going into production, being greenlit, and studios feel more more safe around putting these films in theaters, which is why I think even with a lot of the pushes that you've seen so far with or delays within movie releases right now, the big one that people are looking at because of this surge is The Batman, which is coming out on March 4th, but I think Warner Brothers sees the field of what is working right now, and again, comic book movies are one of those. Batman is as big of a character in and of himself as any other character, even in movie history and in, in, in pop culture that I'm sure they feel satisfied and that they can make some profit and that this surge of the pandemic will be quiet by by March 4th. But you don't see any other studios making any changes right now because I think they feel confident in what people are willing to go see right now in the theaters and these big event movies that can bring you an experience that you wouldn't get at your house right now. So I think Scream is just another addition to that right now. And again, for this franchise, the fact that it was able to blend old and new together. This is a great accomplishment for Paramount, for Spy, uh, excuse me, Spyglass Media, and also for the, the directors, Radio Silence, who, who also helped write it as well. They did an incredible job, so I'm sure they're very happy with what this is going to do for them and the opening weekend for this movie, but again, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next couple of weeks, what kind of legs this has. Was this just the main wave where you have the, the, the big fans come out and nobody else is interested they've seen it they, they they've experienced the horror elements already they don't want to go back and see it again so the, the it's going to be very interesting to see what the legs of this movie are in the next couple of weeks but then coming in at number two this weekend, like I was saying before, is Spider-Man No Way Home grossing still, even though it's number two now, still a very impressive $24 million and now has $702 million at the box office domestically, $926 million internationally for a worldwide total of $1.6 million. And another weekend comes and another weekend for breaking records for this movie. Along with grossing $702 million domestically, it is now the fourth highest grossing domestic release in the box office United States' history. It surpassed both Avengers Infinity War and Black Panther, which grossed $700 million. And it's only behind Avatar, which grossed $760 million, Avengers Endgame, which grossed $858, and the still reigning champion, six, seven years later now, running, is still Star Wars The Force Awakens with a humongous $936 million overall. It is also the ninth highest grossing film of all time when you take worldwide totals into account. It is behind, it is number eight, but it is behind Lion King, which is at number seven, and Jurassic World, which are also at $1.6 million. So I think it's just about rounding out the numbers, and I wouldn't be shocked if in the next week or two it it surpasses those two films and 
becomes the sixth highest grossing film of all time, just behind Avengers Infinity War, which has $2 billion right now. And I, 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 Spider-Man Away Home could get there, but I think because it's it's losing a little bit of its steam right now, it's been out for a while. I don't know if it's going to get to that point. But again, the fact that it's playing like this, it, playing like it's pre-pandemic times in the midst of a pandemic, the way that it, it's really been able to shake off this variant of COVID and people are still going out to see this movie numerous times, I think is a huge accomplishment for Sony, for Marvel, and for everybody that worked on the film that one of the things that with a lot of these movies where you looked at Shang-Chi, Venom, they did really well for themselves, but... I think one of the key things that it was missing was the repeat viewings of those films and whether it was that people just wanted to see it once and that was it. They didn't they didn't need to see it multiple times or they, it could have been because of COVID where they saw it once, they saw it, that's it. And then they would have waited for Disney Plus or, or streaming or other video home movie sales to go with seeing it again so they don't have to go to the theaters. So I think that was a little something that was missing from those movies. And I think one of the big questions for No Way Home was – a, what would be the rewatchability factor of it? And would people go many times to see it in theaters? And I think the numbers speak for themselves that people went multiple times, whether it was in a weekend, whether it was over an extended period of time, people went to go see this film in droves and it's still happening now. And, and again, it's just a huge inc- accomplishment for what this film could do. And again, going back to studio confidence, studios see this and they could think to themselves, well, maybe we could be the next one. And that's why, again, I think Warner Brothers is doing that. I think Marvel is content with where they are at right now. So a lot of studios are not moving their big budgeted films right now because they are seeing if they could hone in on that potentially. And if their film has all the right ingredients, they could be one of those films like No Way Home, which again, is it, it's a very, very hard road and you got to be that kind of movie. But we'll see in what is going to be a very stacked 2022. So another great weekend for Spider-Man No Way Home. And then coming in at number three was Sing 2 which grossed another two, oh, excuse me, not two, but $10.3 million at the box office and now has $121 million domestically, 900, no, excuse me, not 900, excuse me, my words are all over the place right now. It grossed $96 million internationally for a worldwide total of $218 million. So again, it, it's not having the numbers as the first film did, but considering the curve that we can give right now within this pandemic era, Sing 2 is one of the most profitable films, especially for the fa- the family genre and the animated genre in, in, in the pandemic era of movies right now. So I think, again, this demographic that studios might be a little bit uncomfortable right now of putting animated films or family movies out right now, they should have some of their nerves retract a little bit. I, can, I think especially because you have kids that can get vaccinated now, families might feel a little bit more comfortable going out to open spaces. And also, families still got to do stuff. You got you to take your kids somewhere. And I think if the, the film is right and, and it's something that you can only see in theaters, I think it's going to, films are going to do really well. And also a big thing for this film is the fact that it's now premiering on VOD, but it's still doing well in theaters right now, which I think turns to the fact that if you want to go see a film in theaters, you will go see a movie in theaters instead of waiting at home and, and, and watching it at home instead. So I think a lot of these films in the top three are examples that, uh, again, we're in different times right now. We're still in crazy pandemic mode, but 
if people want to do something, they will go out and do it and abide by the protocols that are out there if you have to follow certain rules in order to keep yourself safe and people safe as well. So Sing 2, again, not on the level that the first one was doing, but given all the difficulties that family movies have been having, especially in animation, this is, I think, a, a home run hit for Universal at this point right now. And then coming in at number four in a huge drop-off from last weekend is the 355, which grossed another $2.7 million at the box office and now has $8.8 million domestically and has $5.4 million internationally for a worldwide total of $14 million. And unfortunately, this was not surprising at all to see the disastrous box office results for this film, which is a little bit of a shame because I think this was a great cast. I think the fact that it was female-led is great. And again, when you see these numbers, it gets a little worrisome that studios might feel a little bit more negligent to not include some of these movies in the future. But I think, if anything, this encourages that this is the step in the right direction and that if you just get the right story, the right, I think, sequences involved and a better script, I think you could do something special with, with, with a film like this. It just unfortunately didn't have, again, the story. I think that they, they could have gotten a better director, all due respect. I don't think Simon Kimberg was the best guy for the job, and I think he's got a track record now. Even though as a screenwriter, he's done some good things in the comic book realm, I don't think necessarily he is somebody that you can have confidence in when it comes to stuff outside of that. So I just think it was a mix of things outside of the control of the of the of the cast that they just couldn't get it done but i would hope to see more of these films down the line just executed to a better extent then coming in at number five was the kingsman which grossed another 2.6 million dollars at the box office and it has 29 million dollars domestically internationally has 65 million dollars for a worldwide total of 94 million dollars and again at this point in time with the previous two kingsman films they were already making over 100 million dollars domestically at the box office so this is not a great run for this movie and again it skews a little bit more adult and i just think that this is a movie that was supposed to come out years ago it's been a couple years since the last kingsman film since 2017 to be exact so there's been a little bit of a time between these movies and it's not the same cast so i don't think this was really set up to have a great success line and you can tell by the actions from the studio that they are putting this film on hulu in February and in other markets as well. So the home video release is on a shorter window as well. And I think it showcases that Disney sees that this isn't doing well in theaters and that maybe it can do some good stuff over on home video and streaming as well. So that is what came in at the number five spot and the moving down to the bottom five of the top 10 coming in at number six was American underdog with 1.9 million dollars for a domestic total of 21 million dollars overall at the box office and then coming in at number seven was one of the other new releases this weekend Bell which is an, an, an anime movie it grows 1.6 million dollars at the box office and has 58 million dollars internationally for a worldwide total of 60 million dollars then coming in at number eight was West Side Story, which has racked in another $1.1 million at the box office for $34 million domestically, $23 million internationally, and a worldwide accumulation of $57 million at the box office. And hopefully, like Kingsman, this is a film that can find some kind of audience at home because, again, I think this is a movie, like a lot of films this year, that weren't able to find their 
audience at the theaters, whether it was, again, because of the pandemic or people just didn't want to go see a remake of a classic film in West Side Story, which, again, I say this is the superior movie, is is what it is. And hopefully it can find something on VOD, on home release that it wasn't able to find on the big screen because I highly recommend everyone seeing that movie when they get a chance. Coming in at number nine was Licorice Pizza grossing $1.09 million at the box office for $9 million domestically, $4 million internationally, and a worldwide total of $14 million. And then to round out the top 10, Ghostbusters Afterlife makes a surge in in the number 10 spot after nine weeks in theaters and now has it has $950,000 this weekend for a 126 tally at the domestic market, $68 million internationally for a worldwide total of $194 million. So Ghostbusters Afterlife still hanging in there in the limited amount of theaters that it's in right now. It's only in about 1,200 theaters right now. So I'm sure that number will be dwindling, but a film that came out in November is still hanging in at the top 10 box office but that is the top 10 for this weekend just to go over it again from 10 to 1 number 10 was Ghostbusters Afterlife number 9 Liquor's Pizza number 8 West Side Story number 7 Bell number 6 American Underdog number 5 The Kingsman number 4 The 355 number 3 was Sing 2 number 2 was Spider-Man No Way Home and coming in at the number 1 spot this weekend new to take the box office crown was the 5th installment in the Scream franchise Scream so that is your top 10 this weekend. What did you guys think of it? Was there anything that surprised you? Were you surprised by the intake that Scream made over the four-day weekend? Or what about Spider-Man No Way Home? Do you think that it can gross $2 billion? Let me know down below and leave your thoughts. And then moving on now, away from the box office, I want to go into, because I didn't have any shows last week after Tuesday, I was off Wednesday and Thursday, I didn't have anything, I want to go into my TV recaps for two major shows that are on streaming services right now, The Book of Boba Fett and Peacemaker. It's getting a, Both are getting a lot of attention right now, but I'm going to start off with the one that I've been doing for the last couple of weeks, and that is in a galaxy far, far away in Chapter 4 for The Book of Boba Fett, titled The Gathering Storm. It was directed by Kevin Trankin, who was is somebody that's done a lot of television over the last couple of years, but he gets his first crack at the Star Wars franchise. And I know this show has been up and down for a lot of people. I've consistently been enjoying it. I really like what this show is is bringing to the table. It's something different and, and I think unique. And this episode, I think, continues that. I really, really enjoyed what they brought to the table. And again, this is a non-spoiler review. I'm not going to give anything away here. If I do have a podcast on Friday, Friday, I definitely will give some spoilers just because I don't know if I'll have one on Monday. So I'll give people a day or two to, to soak it in, watch it, and then give my overall thoughts on or my spoiler thoughts on what I thought of this episode. But in terms of non-spoiler, I, I think this show, this episode brings into focus, I think, what the, the overall story is going to be. And we keep going back to the flashbacks, and I think they're really starting to tie into what's happening in the present day. And I I really like what Tamora Morrison brings to the table. I think Ming-Na Wen is spotlighted throughout this episode as well. And just the commodity between the two of them, I, I think, is, is really, really enjoyable. I think the action in this one is definitely a lot better. I will say about the Robert Rodriguez-directed episodes, which were one in three— 
definitely when you see the, the two different directors and Steph Green and then in this one the, the, the action sequences are a lot more well paced I think with Robert Rodriguez's ones they're a little bit more quick cut they're they're a little bit they're, they're a little bit too jagged and I think with these ones they allow for, for certain scenes to breathe and this one is around 48 49 minutes long so it's kind of been a pattern where the odd numbers are more the shorter episodes and so forth the even numbers have been the longer extended episodes that we've seen and i really like how they are utilizing the longer episodes and kind of delving into a lot of these backstories and letting us live into more of the world of Tatooine than we, I think we've really ever seen before. And another great thing, not to get into any spoilers, but I love the way that they're able to utilize the the score for this show and how they kind of tie back to potentially other installments in the Star Wars franchise, some of the iconic themes that are brought, brought into this one that indicate what could potentially be happening in future episodes episodes down the line, but I really, really overall have enjoyed this show, and I know people are saying that it's a little too slow-paced, and it's not what they wanted it to be, and to that I say it's it's okay for it not to be what you wanted it to be, but as long as you go in and you have a little bit of an open mind and, and you try to accept what they, what they want to do, but in the end, if you still don't like it, then that's your opinion, and I think for a lot of people, they were hoping for Boba Fett to be one way, but he's a different way right Right now and I, and I like the direction that they're taking with it and I think what what John Favreau has done is really give us a deep exploration to a character that I didn't really think we needed anything about and I love how he's invoking all these different genres into this specific show where it's not really just a, a crime show it's something that is it's it's so many different genres to really kind of unpack into one whole show kind of like what Mandalorian does but I, I really really have been enjoying it I, I'm excited to see where it goes I think it sets up a really interesting end game for the final three weeks so we'll see what happens but some great surprises some great callbacks some great fleshing out of characters that if, if you don't even know anything about them, I think they give some great backstories into them as well. It makes you want to go back and see what some of these characters are, are really all about. So I, I'm, I'm enjoying the show so far. I can't wait to see how it all kind of comes together and kind of brings it to a conclusion. And, and I think this is going to be a show that when you go back and watch it, in its entirety, I think it'll play a lot better for people. And, and, and I've been experiencing that a lot, even though I love the weekly release because it builds up a lot of expectation and anticipation for what you want to see in these shows and makes them events. I do think that it loses some of the the transitioning for the story from one week to another where you kind of have to remember what happened the previous week to invoke what's going to happen in the story moving forward. And I think I, I did this a lot when it came to to WandaVision and a lot of the Marvel shows, you pick up on a lot of things and the story feels more connected and fluid when you have that happen than watching it week to week to week. So I definitely think that when all is said and done, I think if you go back and watch it, this is one that I think people 
people will maybe be a little bit more mixed on when they initially watch it. But as the, the show goes along, I think people will find enjoyment in, in ways that maybe they didn't expect. So uh, again, I know this isn't this isn't what everyone thought it was going to be, but for what it is right now, I'm really enjoying what they're doing with the book of Boba Fett. And I'll have more in, of an in-detailed review for it coming down the line in the next couple of days. But for non-spoiler review, I really like what I'm seeing from the book of Boba Fett. And then transitioning from a galaxy far, far away to the DC universe, the next couple of weeks, we have a great one-two punch of Boba. And then on Thursdays, we get Peacemaker. And last week, we got the three-episode debut for DC's Peacemaker, which is a spin-off sequel to the, the movie last year that came out in The Suicide Squad. And now we follow the character played by John Cena, and it's in the aftermath of what happened in the movie. And Peacemaker is brought in to take care of another mission, this time with a smaller kind of task force X group that comes from Amanda Waller. And I really have enjoyed the trailers that came out for this. This is this was created, written, and directed five episodes by James Gunn. So he is the master of this show. He crafted really everything for it. And I liked what I saw in the trailers. This feels just as much as everything that James Gunn loves to do as the Suicide Squad was. And it if there were any kind of, of cuffs on him in any other films that he's done, especially in the MCU, he feels even freer than he did when he did The Suicide Squad. And that was a full rated R film, and it feels like he was able to do whatever he wanted to do. This feels like that on steroids, where really with HBO, you can really, for the most part, do absolutely anything you want. You don't really have to per se worry about a rating system. You still have to get rated, of course, to, so that they can put in what's in the, the show, but you don't have any exemptions that will knock you down from not being able to air any of your show or content that you want to put out there. And so you see that very much in just the first couple of minutes of the show alone. And it's really just James Gunn doing his thing where you have the unique humor, you have the cool, quirky action, you have the quirky characters, but also you have these amazing explorations of these complicated characters, and it's all led by Peacemaker and John Cena. And the big question, of course, was can John Cena lead something like this? It's a superhero property. It's really his first leading role in anything because when you look at a lot of stuff that he's co-led in it's been ensemble stuff and it's mostly been for for comedy and while this has a lot of comedic elements there's it's a lot more complicated and there's a lot more layers to peacemaker than meets the eye than than what he's really giving off so can john cena be one to pull it off and he does in spades i mean there's a reason i think that james gunn trusted cena to take on this character he felt confident enough to move on that he wanted to make this a spin-off and he wanted this to be the first one out of, out of all the characters in his Suicide Squad arsenal, he decided that Peacemaker was the character to take in that direction. And while maybe the trailers made it made it look a little hesitant, it, it, it carries over, and you can understand why this character is so interesting for Gunn to take on. And Cena, I think, does again an outstanding job. I think he carries this from the very beginning, and he's not a deterrent. He's a main focus and a main improvement point on this show. And you want, and he's a part of the reason why I think you're going to want to come back and see this every week. A few of the other standouts to me were also Danielle Brooks from Orange Is the New Black, who plays a character totally created out of thin air 
Mera by James Gunn. This isn't somebody from the comics. Her name is Adebayo. And from the moment, again, she comes on screen, she commands it. And she is just as funny as Cena is. She is a great scene partner alongside of him. Also alongside the rest of the team that is just as great. But I think Cena, her, and also Jennifer Holland, who was also in the Suicide Squad as, as hardcore, I think they are really kind of the standouts of the first three episodes so far. I think they bring the most dynamic, interesting qualities to the show, to their characters, and I'm really excited to see where their journeys lead to down the line. And also, you can't go on without talking about Peacemaker and not bring up the phenomenal intro to this show and everyone's talking about it now it's online for people to see if you don't even watch the show but you watch the intro you know what i'm talking about it is just so much fun and again the most james gunn thing you could ever see and as goofy as it looks and cena's talked about it where he's not really a dancer he didn't feel confident doing it he didn't know what he was doing and how it would translate and it's translated in spades everyone loves it the the quirkiness of it just the absurdity it's just so much fun and and it truly, truly is one of the things that whenever you hear reviews from people that are saying like, oh, this thing's fantastic and oh, this thing's great. Sometimes those things can be a little overhyped, but this was some, but sometimes things are hyped up and they live up to those expectations and tenfold. And this is one of those aspects. It truly is something where you don't want to turn it off. You know, you have on the little bottom corner, it says on every streaming service that you watch, skip intro. This truly is something. And it's the same thing over and over and over again. I don't know if if in the next couple of episodes in the, in the coming weeks, if they're gonna if they're gonna change things up, but even if they don't, you you love it. You just it's just a joy to see, and and I think for people that just want to check that out, I think you will find happiness in that as well. And I think this is definitely showcasing the best things about James Gunn that make him who he is and may, and are, re, are the reasons why people love his work. And, and you're seeing it on social media. I got to say, as much as I really am enjoying Book of Boba Fett, I think this out of the gate in its first three episodes is getting more buzz than that is right now. Everyone on social media has been watching it. They, they have loved it. So I think this is going to be that talked about show right now that people are really looking forward to over Boba Fett at this particular moment in time. Sure, you're going to have people that are going to be reacting and, and and talking about it all over the place with, with Boba, but Peacemaker seems it could be that show right now, and it has four more weeks to do that. We did have the first three episodes come out. Again, the story, I really liked some of the mystery that was involved, and by the time you get to the end of the third episode, it's just some of the things that you're wondering, well, what's this and what's that, and then some of it's revealed by the end. You're like, that is the most James Gunn thing that could possibly happen, and it works, and you're excited to see where episode four is going to go and the rest of the season from here on now, but I, I really love this show. It is, It has lived up and surprised me in, in ways that I wasn't expecting, and I can't wait to see where it goes from here. Also, Vigilante, played by Freddie Stroma, I think, you you know, if you know the drama to that story, he was recasted about five episodes in, and you can, if you know the story, you can definitely tell that James Gunn did certain things to kind of keep him, keep the character of Vigilante involved in the story, but... 
I think did some really interesting and basic when it comes to movie movie making or or television making or just creative making. He did some things that you're like, okay, that makes sense, and maybe some things were voiced over and to put him into this scene here and there, but it works, and I can't wait to see more of his character as well. Just everything about this team and the show work, and I can't wait to see where it goes from here. But what did you guys think about the first three episodes of Peacemaker? Did you enjoy them? Did you not enjoy them? Did they live up to your expectations? Did they didn't? What did you think about John Cena? Let me know down below and leave your thoughts. Also, what do you think is the better show right now? If you've seen both, even though Book of Boba Fett has, well, right now it has one more episode than, than Peacemaker, but by tomorrow it'll be even. So what do you think? Let me know and leave your thoughts. Now to move on over to some movie news that has come out over the last week or so since I've been on and the first thing that I want to get into is some award season news. And the big one that came out last Wednesday was the announcement of the Screen Actors Guild nominations. And this is one of the bigger ones to come out when it comes to award season and the lead up to the Academy Awards. This is the acting branch, the, the guild that whenever you see actors on screen, everyone has a union. And the Screen Actors Guild is the acting re- the union for performers. And they are a huge branch and they are a branch that is a considerable number of members at the Academy Awards and again I I said this last week when you look at a lot of the guilds the the producers guild the writers guild directors guild they make up a majority of the Academy Award membership there are some international members that I don't think that are are part of some of these guilds which is why it makes it interesting to see what things do make it in and don't make it in when these nominations do, do come out and when Oscar nomination morning comes in we get some surprises and i think the p the members that are not involved in these guilds are the the members that can make a big difference but still especially when it comes to the performances especially with the winners that usually becomes the 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 placeholder and the indicator for what the front runners are going to be when it comes to winners on Oscar night, especially when filling out your ballot. Those are, those are kind of the, the the leads that you take of what could eventually be the winners on the Dolby stage. And this year had some had some big surprises. And sometimes the SAG does take some risk, and sometimes they do include nominees that won't have any bearing or any buzz on the, the SAGs this year. And there are, there are, I think, a one or two this year that make that. But there were a lot of surprises this year that I don't think anybody was really expecting whatsoever. But before I get into my main takeaways, I'm just kind of run through each of the categories real quick. There's only really, there's really four, six of them actually. There's five acting slots. Well, there's four main acting slots between acting, supporting acting, and then you have the ensemble. But we're going to start off with best film stunt ensemble. And the nominees in that category were No Time to Die, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, Dune, The Matrix Resurrections, and Black Widow. And then moving on to best supporting actor in film, the nominees were Troy Coaster for Coda, Cody Smith-McPhee for The Power of the Dog, Bradley Cooper for Licorice Pizza, Ben Affleck for The Tender Bar, and Jared Leto for House of Gucci. And then for Best Supporting Actress, the nominees were Ariana DeBoe for West Side Story, Kristen Dunst for The Power of the Dog, Katarina Balfi for Belfast, Kate Blanchett for Nightmare Alley, and Ruth Nega for Passing. And then going into Best Actor, the nominees were Will Smith for King Richard, Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom, Ben 
Benedict Cumberbatch for The Power of the Dog, Denzel Washington for The Tragedy of Macbeth, and Javier Bardem for Being the Ricardos. And then moving on to the final acting category, or the kind of the performances is Best Actress, and the nominees were Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter, Nicole Kidman for Being the Ricardos, Lady Gaga for The House of Gucci, Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, and Jennifer Hudson for Respect. And then the final category, which is kind of the Best Picture list for the SAG is called Best Film Ensemble, and the nominees were Coda, Belfast, King Richard, Don't Look Up, and House of Gucci. And so those are all the nominees that came in. And again, there were a bunch of surprises that I didn't have down, and I don't think a lot of people had down when looking at their sheet. So just kind of going through it real quick, I want to start off with with Best Supporting Actor. I had about three out of the five categories right on Gold Derby. I didn't get any of the Belfast Boys, which was a huge snub because when you look at Jimmy Doran and Sierran Hins, they were names that you were hearing a lot coming out of a lot of the precursors, and they got snubbed this time around. And, And in replace of them were Bradley Cooper and... Jared Leto. And the main surprise here was actually Bradley Cooper for Licorice Pizza because even though he's only in it for 20 minutes, he makes the most of his 20 minutes and is a a definite highlight of that film. And Jared Leto is somebody who he's definitely been in the mix, but he I feel like he's lost a little bit of steam because I feel like a lot of the a lot of the attention, especially on the on the acting side, has been placed on Lady Gaga, and so I didn't know if they would give him a lot of the love. And overall, this seems like the SAG loves Jared Leto, as he did get a nomination last year for his supporting role in The Little Things with Denzel Washington and Rami Malek, and that was definitely a lesser love movie than I think House of Gucci is. And I think they they really love the performances that he puts on, and definitely what he does as Paolo in this film he he just transforms himself and I think he's definitely one of the highlights of the movie and it makes sense for why I think he would get a nomination. The one that I absolutely love that I had in, if you listen to my my podcast on Tuesday of last week, I had Ben Affleck as my kind of wild card in my fifth spot where I think he's going to get in and take over for some of these other supporting roles that I think could get snubbed. And he was probably like the third or fourth option on that list. And I love seeing him there. I definitely think that when it comes to the Oscar momentum, I don't think this is just a fluke. I do think he's back in it and he should be because he delivers a tremendous performance in the tender bar and hopefully this leads to some talk for him getting a nomination for his acting role in this movie because when you look at Ben Affleck he's never been nominated for acting he's whenever you look at his Oscar resume it's been for stuff that he's done as a writer with Goodwill Hunting or as a producer in in Argo so for him maybe to get recognition for one of his roles as an actor I think would be really big and it would be great for it to be this role in this movie. But Troy Coaster, no surprise. I still think Cody Smith-McPhee is the front runner, but it's. It, I think Troy Coaster is the the runner-up in this category right now. I think it's a two-legged race between those two, but I still give the leg over Cody for The Power of the Dog. And then moving on to Best Supporting Actress, this category didn't really have a whole lot of surprises in my view. I, really, the only surprise, well, actually, there was a surprise, and that was Anjanoon Ellis not getting in for King Richard. She was basically replaced by Kate Blanchett 
get for Nightmare Alley. And usually that category does have a, I guess you could say a random nomination that you wouldn't even think would be a part of the award season conversation and most likely won't. A few years ago, it was Emily Blunt for a quiet place part uh, for a quiet place, and she was great in the role, but it didn't lead to anything else. And I think the same thing here, where I think Kate Blanchett was was great and in, in the role in Nightmare Alley, and I really love the film overall. She was a highlight, but I don't think she's going to end up winning. I think this is just one of those things where they wanted to nominate Kate Blanchett, and and she's she's had a really good 2021 and into 2022. So I wouldn't be shocked if her in there as well but to me she's nowhere near being the front runner i was very happy to see ruth naga in here for passing i think like ben affleck i think she has a lot of momentum and i would not be shocked if she is one of the five names that is called on oscar nomination morning for best supporting actress i think there's been a lot of support for passing and i think she's been kind of the face of that film in terms of the award season buzz it's been getting and i think she could get a nomination for that in the in the oscars but this really kind of comes down to i think ariana debose i think she is the the front runner at this point i think especially after the Golden Globe win. And also, to me, what gives a big indicator is the fact that she did go on SNL. And I think that is a an indicator. And usually around this time of year, you do get some people that you would say, oh, they're doing SNL. And a, a big part of it is because I think studios and representatives make the push to get out there more and, and to kind of campaign and get your face out there and get buzz around your name. And I'm, I, that is, I think, very much why. And I'm sure it was a great opportunity. And she is very much a theater person and I'm sure it was a dream of hers and so you have those reasons as well but a main reason for the people behind the scenes is that they very much feel like she has a legitimate chance not just to get a nomination I think but to really take this thing all the way to March and win at the Dolby Theater and get that golden statue for a role that already won in 1961 and she could very well do it again for this adaptation from Steven Spielberg which would be very well deserved but again she does have some competition I think Again, Kirsten Dunst is somebody we've been hearing her name a lot of as well. But to me, Ariana DeBose is not really even just the... It isn't just a front runner for this. She's really, again, kind of like what Ruth Naga is right now. Even though I think Steven Spielberg will get nominated and I think the film West Side Story will get nominated for Best Picture, I think she is really kind of the face of that film right now in terms of really having a shot of winning anything. So Ariana Debo right now would be my front runner in that category. And then moving into Best Actor overall, again, I to me... The four, I got four out of the five right. I think those four will be called at nomination morning. I think Will Smith, Andrew Garfield, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Denzel Washington will be the names. Once again, it's that fifth spot where it could go to a multiple layer of people. And again, one of those four could be knocked out for somebody else as well. But I had Leonardo DiCaprio in as my fifth spot for this. I just think his name, the film that he's in, very progressive. Uh, Hollywood's very into climate change and, and, and into the environment and don't look up very much deals with those in, in a satirical way. But Javier Bardem did get in for playing Desi Arnaz and being the Ricardos. And that doesn't surprise me as well, because again, Nicole Kidman has been the face of that movie and, and that and that campaign push. But Javier Bardem, it, it's a it's a two-handed tango really when it comes to that movie and I think without nominating Nicole Nicole Kidman you have to nominate Javier Bardem and, and vice versa 
And so I think also the fact that, again, it's Hollywood loving Hollywood and honoring what those two meant to the industry. And even though Desi Arnaz is somebody that is a complicated character and person, I definitely, he brought a lot to television and I think people see that and, and people love Javier Bardem. And I, and I do think he actually is very underrated in, in that movie. I think he delivers a, a great performance alongside Nicole Kidman. And so I'm, I'm happy to see him get this nomination. But in the end, it's really a two-legged race, but it's right now without a, without a winner in, in a lot of these categories, and Andrew Garfield and Will Smith won their respective ones in at the Golden Globes, but it's re, it, it's a three-headed monster, but really a two-legged race as I see right now between Will Smith and Andrew Garfield, and that th- third person that you could throw in there is Benedict Cumberbatch right now, but to me, it's between Smith and Garfield. They both deliver phenomenal performances, and it's going to, I think, really kind of come down to what happens with the 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 critics choice and also what happens at the sags in in february if if one of those guys wins they become the front runner but it's between those two right now locked in in step but i think these are the names that we're going to be seeing at the nomination ceremony for the oscars on in February of the uh, for, for the the Oscars, but no big surprises in terms of snubs or I think really even surprises when it comes to actor. The one that had the most surprises out of any acting category out of the SAGs this year had to be Best Actress, and it had the biggest bombshell snub of them all, and that is of course Kristen Stewart not getting in for her role as Diana Spencer. That that changes the the entirety of of the race for best actress because for the longest time I kept it that way and I think a lot of people did as well that Kristen Stewart wasn't just a front runner to be nominated but also could potentially be the front runner to win the whole award and this changes everything and this isn't to say that she's not going to get nominated at the Oscars but this really hurts her chance and nobody's gone on to win the Oscars without a SAG nomination or even be nominated so this is this does not bode well for Kristen Stewart, which is a shame because she really does give the performance of her career at this point with this role. She makes it her own. She does something so different than what we've seen anything done in a adaptation of Princess Diana. So hopefully she gets the nomination, but I don't know if that's gonna cut it anymore to be the frontrunner to win it. So I, this is this is now turned to a certainty, to kind of a wild card slash uncertainty where. You might have to put Kristen Stewart more in like the three to five space, maybe into the six or seven slot outside looking in for her to have a shot of getting into this category because there's a lot of of people now that have kind of jumped back into this conversation right now. When you look at all the, the, the nominations themselves and the nominees, Jessica Chastain is somebody who has kind of been in that category for for a while, and she's been on a lot of people's radar, and this kind of jumps her back into that conversation, I think, full-time. Olivia Colman, Nicole Kidman, Lady Gaga, I got those three right. To me, those are ones that are definite. I, wouldn't say, I don't want to say locks. I never like using that word, but I do think that they are certain to potentially get a nomination on Oscar morning. And the one big surprise in this category that was a surprise was 
was Jennifer Hudson getting back into this race for respect. And again, she was somebody where if you asked me last year, I thought she could win the whole thing. But I definitely thought even before respect was out. She was definitely going to get a nomination, but because that film came out in August and she was phenomenal in the role, but it just, the film lost steam and that tends to happen when a film comes out in the summer. It's always tough for a movie to keep momentum for such a long time, especially since these last couple of years, the award season calendar has extended really. So it's tough for a lot of these studios when you have so many movies that you want people to look at to keep that film in, in the mix and keep it in people's minds. So the fact that she was able to get a nomination, people love her. I think they love the role. Again, an iconic performer that to, to kind of revere her, uh, it, it, it makes sense. So I think she is going to be in this race as well. And now you have to add Kristen Stewart to a list that includes Rachel Zegler and a lot of Hyam of outside looking in potentially. I had Rachel Ziegler as my, as my wild card, but I think that if there was any hope of her can, getting any more momentum moving forward of potentially becoming a Best Actress nominee at the Oscars this year, I, I think this kind of closes the door full time for her getting that. I mean, she could still surprise and get in, but I think her time will come soon enough. But I think for playing Maria in West Side Story, it, this just isn't her time right now. So we'll see where that leads. But when it comes to the actress category, I really don't know who's the frontrunner at this point. I mean, again, I always thought it was going to be Kristen Stewart no matter what, but I think the top two right now, and I, I could flip-flop these in a, in a couple weeks, but it would probably be Nicole Kidman for me right now at number one, and then Olivia Coleman at number two. I think those would be it, and then Lady Gaga or Jennifer Hudson maybe at number three. It, it, it's tough, and, and it's always Best Actress that is the wild card, and when, when it comes to nominations, you don't know who's going to get in, and, and in terms of a frontrunner, you have really no idea, so we'll see what happens, but this is one that just completely completely turns it around overall. And then when it comes to best film ensemble, Three, three certainties that I think were no surprise. Coda, Belfast, Don't Look Up. I mean, you look at the roster for that movie, and they all, I think, did a great job in that movie. And Coda, I mean, it's it's involved within the deaf community. They, they all did a great job, diversity and, and inclusion. And this is a community that you want to include, and it was a great film, so it makes sense. Belfast makes sense. The Power of the Dog not being in there, especially when three out of the four acting categories were nominated, but you don't get an ensemble award is pretty surprising and it was replaced by King Richard which to me was also a surprise because when you look at the film ensemble along with Coda Belfast Don't Look Up you had House of Gucci King Richard which for, for me House of Gucci I mean you look at the cast overall makes sense Lady Gaga Adam Driver Jared Leto you had Al Pacino Jeremy uh, Jeremy Irons it, it, it's a great cast and they, they all did a really good job and King Richard to me, is surprising because they snubbed Anjanoon Ellis, but and it was only Will Smith leading the charge. But you look at that film; it's spearheaded by a terrific cast. But I, I still would have put West Side Story in there. I think it was a much better, well-rounded cast. But I think it's because there, there's maybe some more established actors in there, whereas there's a lot of first-time leads in West Side Story. But I still would have given it to that film. And I think any chance of maybe being a frontrunner that that film had. Is, is kind of squashed at this point. I mean, again, it can still happen. We'll see what, that, what happens at the DGA, at the PGAs, but it, this is a little bit of a blow to that film's Oscar chances of winning, but I still think it's going to be one that is going to rack up a lot of nominations on Oscar morning. But that is the list for 
the Screen Actors Guild. And again, those are to me the big takeaways from the nominations. And again, I'll have Jason on in the next couple of weeks. We'll recap these and we'll recap the other Guild nominations that come in as well, especially as we get closer to the Oscar nominations. And then, of course, the Screen Actors Guild ceremony. And then, of course, the Oscar ceremony in March as well. So there's a lot more award season news coming your way in the next couple of weeks and months on the podcast. But this is just the start of it. But what did you guys think about these nominations? Let me know down below and leave your thoughts. Now I want to move away from some award season news and move into, of course, as I always do on the podcast, because it's the biggest thing in Hollywood right now, and that is going into the comic book genre. And we got a first look into the DCEU at really kind of the first, as of right now, HBO HBO Max movie that is set to debut from the DCEU, and that is a live-action adaptation of Batgirl, and it stars Leslie Grace, is directed by the guys who did Bad Boys for Life. And we we also know that Brandon Frazier is going to be playing the main villain in this. J.K. Simmons is coming back as Commissioner Gordon. There are reports that Michael Keaton is set to return as Batman from what he what, whatever he does in the Flash film. He's going to be coming into this one next. So we'll see how that's all connected in some kind of a way. But this is turning out to be a very interesting movie that has a lot of ramifications, it seems like. And one of the big things, of course, when it comes to something like this is what is the cost? look like? How does Leslie Grace look in the costume? And we've never really seen, other than the, the 1960s Adam West, there ever be a live action, ba- well actually I shouldn't say that Alicia Silverstone from Batman and Robin was Batgirl as well but this is one that people are really excited to see. She's spearheading it on her own. This is her solo movie and a lot of people want to know what is what is what is she going to look like and to a lot of surprises, Leslie Grace on her Instagram dropped the first look at her costume and it's got the it's very much a traditional in the sense from the comics and also from I think a little bit of an, of a homage to the 1960s costume as well where it's the purple and the yellow and gold and and it's got the that, that sparkle to it it very much fits her and she looks amazing in it and when she said because when you look at Leslie Grace She's very much somebody that I think is more of a kind of brunette. And when they said that she was going to be the redhead and take on that true iconic look of, of Batgirl, how is that going to look? And from the set photos and from the, the picture, it fits perfectly. And she looks uh, amazing in it. She looks like she was fit and born to play this character. It looks like it's ripped right out of the comic book pages. So I'm psyched about it. And it's also a smart move because there's been a lot of leaks and and pictures from the outside sets of Batgirl and this I feel like this only happens with DC because when you look at the Marvel films and we'll talk about Moon Knight in a little bit you didn't see any looks at that costume whatsoever they were able to keep something like that hidden or with well, sometimes we're getting leaks of Thor's costume now but well they've been able to keep their 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 costumes under wraps pretty well for the most part but with DC I mean I remember when Robert Pattinson's look at the Batman came out and and when you look at the set photos, it didn't look, it looked a little off, but then they released kind of test footage and it looked badass. And 
I think the same thing here because they, they it seems like they were trying to cover it up as much as they could and, and when it felt like they couldn't do it anymore, they released the photo and now you're seeing set photos come out where you're seeing her in the full Batgirl outfit. So I'm sure it was a a play between the studio and her team where they're like, look, we're gonna, we gotta film these, these outside locations. You're gonna be in the costume. People are gonna see it. So let's get out in front of it and show people what it looks like. Get the positive buzz going now or get the feedback now while we're still filming so they can see what it looks like and not what it looks like while we're filming without all the modifications and the movie magic that they're going to attribute to it. So I think it was a smart idea on their part. I love the look of it. I cannot wait for this film. And I think the big question also comes into play, is this the final costume? Is this what she's going to be wearing at the beginning of the film or maybe halfway through and then she has a final rendition in the third act of the film? Who knows? But I really like what I'm seeing so far in, in this photo. I can't wait to see footage from this. This is set to come out sometime this year and they're filming now so i mean look spider-man no way home was filming end of december early into 2021 and it came out december of 2021 so uh, again uh, this probably comes out october november of this year so uh, this is exciting and for dc i mean they're starting off strong with peacemaker right now and they got some great stuff that for people to look forward to with the batman and they just came out with some new posters for that everyone's buzzing about it black adam the flash the batwoman or, or Batgirl now so there's a lot of great stuff to look forward to and this is just another piece of the puzzle and the costume looks great and I can't wait to see that in live action and in motion in a trailer so really cool stuff really looking forward to what we're going to see with Batgirl moving on now from the DCEU into the MCU and we got really kind of our first major Marvel news for 2022 and we all thought that maybe Maybe the next thing that we would get in the MCU after Spider-Man No Way Home would be Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, kind of leaving a little bit of a six-month span between our last MCU installment and into May 6th, which would be the next one. But it seems like Disney and Marvel are putting a little bit of a stopgap in as on March 30th, it's been officially confirmed we're going to be getting our next installment in the MCU Disney Plus arsenal after Hawkeye. And that, of course, is at the first iteration, the live-action debut of Moon Knight. And this has been one that I've been looking forward to. And if Secret Invasion isn't coming out this year, which I haven't heard confirmation of that yet, it's really kind of only been set in stone that as of right now, Moon Knight, Miss Marvel, She-Hulk, and I think the I Am Groot minis are going to be coming out on Disney Plus this year. I think they're still filming or almost done with photography on, on Secret Invasion as I know of right now. But... Moon Knight is going to be the next thing coming out and again if Secret Invasions doesn't come out this year this is probably the the most anticipated Disney plus MCU show that I'm looking forward to out of the three or four things that are coming out this year I mean you got me with Oscar Isaac knowing some of what this character is and you also have Ethan Hawke in here I've been really looking forward to seeing what they're going to do with this character 
And I love how we they, they brought back the debut of the trailer on Monday Night Football for the wildcard playoffs on ESPN ABC, which is a parent company part of Disney alongside Marvel Studios. So it's all all formulating and, and, and it brought back a little bit of normalcy where they would do that with a lot of the Star Wars trailers. And so I was very happy that they did it with this, get everyone involved and, and watching football at least for a little bit and, and getting them excited for something because the game wasn't that great. But it, I think for the first half, people wanted to see what this Moon Knight trailer was going to be and so they had, they had that to look forward to and the, the the mini trailers that have come out the pictures it's all look great and it's all looked interesting but this is our first full-blown look at this this show and it looked incredible I mean from the brutality of it the supernatural aspects which I'll talk about in a second and how I think that's going to be a major factor moving forward but the way that I can understand why Oscar Isaacs took on this role And I'm so happy for him because when it comes to major franchises, he really has not the best luck. I mean, with Star Wars, he had success because it was a big franchise. It did really well at the box office. But there was a lot of stuff probably going on behind the scenes after Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker that it seemed like he just had enough. And then, of course, with X-Men Apocalypse, he took on a major villain role, but it just didn't work out. It was a mess. And at any point, you'd be disinterested in taking on this kind of stuff again but leave it to Kevin Feige leave it to Marvel to bring him a juicy role that you can understand why he took it on it, it, it's it's something that is different and new and it can test your limits as a performer and I and for Oscar Isaac's caliber it's perfect for him and the same thing with Ethan Hawke where he said I believe multiple times where he wouldn't want to be in that Marvel stuff it, it doesn't fit him but if the right role comes around you will take it and it seems like they were able to offer him something good and you got you have a great dynamic duo in acting that when it comes to the, this Marvel stuff in the MCU I don't think you've had a better dynamic duo just on paper than these two than than these two guys spearheading this show and the the costume looks in incredible and going to the supernatural side a little bit but actually before I go into that let me just read you the synopsis for what this show is going to be and this is how it reads the series follows Stephen Grant, a mild-mannered gift shop employee who becomes plagued with blackouts and memories of another life. Stephen discovers he has dissociative identity disorder and shares a body with mercenary Mark Spector. As Stephen and Mark's enemies converge upon them, they must navigate their complex identities while thrust into a deadly mystery among the powerful gods of Egypt. Moon Knight stars Oscar Isaac, Ethan Hawke, and May Calloway, excuse me, Mohammed Daib, and the team of Justin Benson and Aaron Muhan directed the episodes. Also, by the way, before I finish, Justin Benson, Aaron Moonhead just did some episodes for a new Netflix show called Archive 81. They did some awesome stuff with the supernatural horror elements, which we'll talk about in a second. So we're getting into that territory with the MCU now as well. Just to kind of finish off the, the synopsis. Jeremy Slater is the head writer and Kevin Feige, Louis D. Esposito, Victoria Alonso, Brad Wittenbrum, and Mohamed Deeb. Jeremy Slater, Oscar Isaac are executive producers. And so again, this is something that's going to be dealing with, uh, going to be a psychological thriller, but also have elements of horror. And again, I think this is going to be the true introduction to the supernatural elements of the MCU, which I don't, I would not, it would not surprise me by the end of the sixth episode, we get some kind of a connection to Mahershala Ali with Blade. I, I, I don't think it's going to be a big part of it as the show goes on with the season, but I do think by the end, we could see him in full costume. We could get another, another cameo. 
like we did in Eternals, but I I think we're gonna get something with him that introduces us to this because when Blade was announced, you wondered, well, how are they gonna introduce a whole side of the MCU that hasn't even be haven't hasn't been referenced yet? And I think this is gonna be kind of the introductory course to that realm a little bit. And again, like I said, some of the directors have directed horror and the two episodes that that what these guys were able to do in Aaron Moonhead, Moorhead, excuse me, and Justin Benson, they did some great horror elements within Archive 81. And so if they bring that to the MCU, we've been wondering how's that going to fit in, especially with something like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. That's going to have a lot of Sam Raimi horror elements in, in it as well. So Marvel's going into this direction that we haven't seen before. And, and again, to take on the psychological thriller of what's real, what's not real, and kind of of my mess with you kind of like a Nolan film a little bit like Memento or Inception or even like a Tenet is awesome and I can't wait to see how that all comes to a head and again you understand why these guys would take this stuff on it's something new and it follows the Marvel formula of even though this is all connected it all feels contained it, it all feels like its own thing that you can get into on your own specifically and so I'm looking forward to this the costume again I can't I can't rave enough even though we see a second of it it looks badass and i would i don't wear halloween costumes anymore but i would wear that costume i would i would i would buy that moon knight costume just to try it on because it looks so good but it, it looks the overall show looks great i'm never really a fan of of modern music being put into some of these trailers but the way that they were able to implement that Kid Cudi song just added a element of intensity to it that I didn't think we were going to get. And it's just, it was such a great trailer, such a great overall teaser trailer to what we're going to get. It's streaming on March 30th. And if if it all plays right and we get one episode a week starting on the 30th, the finale will air a day before preview screenings start for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness that May, May 5th. So it's going to be very interesting because if we get two episodes on March 30th, it'll end the last week of April and then it'll kind of leave that first week of May all for Doctor Strange to kind of ramp up production. But as we saw with Hawkeye, we had the finale of Hawkeye was the week the, the week after Spider-Man No Way Home. So Marvel doesn't doesn't care or, or, the, or they don't mind their shows crossing over with their movies in that way of, of having one thing over the other so I don't think that's going to be a problem either way or but again it's just exciting that we're getting a little bit of, of maybe a two month almost three month period of no Marvel we get we of course have Boca Boba Fett right now but we're getting a DC uh, an MCU property once again and the other curious thing that is going to be very interesting and Marvel's done it all I mean the way they introduce characters it, all their characters seem to be very very popular and people love them and the way that they've been able to master introducing all these characters and have everyone love them it is just incredible and why they're so successful at this point this is another obstacle they're going to have to hit where this is the first time that a Disney Plus show is debuting a brand new character because if you look at last year especially the live action stuff WandaVision was Wanda and Vision, Falcon the Winter Soldier was Bucky and Sam, Loki was already established, and Hawkeye all established as supporting characters in the MCU movies. So going into those shows, you knew who some who these characters were because you saw them in the previous MCU films. 
This is going to be something completely different where Mark Spector, Stephen Grant, Moon Knight, even when you go to Miss Marvel and She-Hulk, new characters that we have never been introduced before that Marvel is going to have all this amount of time, six hours, or depending on what happens with She-Hulk and Miss Marvel on their episode count, but with Moon Knight, you're going to have six hours to introduce this, this new character and have us care about him and introduce us to his world, and I, that could, that, I think that's going to be very interesting to see how uh, audiences are going to gravitate to a character that they have either little to no information or knowledge of whatsoever. And so I think that's really exciting because it's the opposite where last year it was the Disney Plus shows that had the established characters and other than Spider-Man and Black Widow, the other two MCU films from last year were Shang-Chi and Eternals and that introduced us to a bunch of new characters. And this year's the opposite where the films now have the established characters and Doctor Strange, Thor, and Black Panther, now it's the the Disney Plus shows that are going to be introducing some new characters, and I'm very interested to see how they utilize that in a way. So... Some great stuff, some new challenges for Marvel to take on, but if there's any indication, I think people from the responses that I've seen are already getting hooked onto Moon Knight with just this trailer. So I'm really excited to see what else they bring to us, and I can't wait to watch the show when it debuts on March 30th. What did you guys think about the Moon Knight trailer and also the teaser poster? It was it was a small just, just Moon Knight's arm, and that was it, but it was simple and effective enough to get people hyped up for the, the show. What did you guys think about both of them? Let me know and leave your thoughts. And the final thing that I'm going to talk about on the Sam Bissell podcast today, because there, there really isn't a lot of big films to see this weekend, so there won't be a weekend preview. I'll do that probably next weekend, but this is the final thing that I'm going to be talking about on the podcast today, and it is the, the last trailer that actually came out a couple of hours ago, and it was the announcement trailer for the Lord of the Rings show that we are finally getting this year. After years and years and months of speculation and setbacks and and so many different things where we finally have some information about this brand new Lord of the Rings show. And it's not just going to be titled Lord of the Rings. Oh no, because you can't do that because Lord of the Rings is already called Lord of the Rings. It will be titled Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. And it will take place in the second age of Middle-earth. And really that second age falls in line with around the the time period of when you had the actual introduction of this world in the Fellowship of the Ring, where the, where, where the rings were forged and, they, and all these different ones were given out and you had Sauron creating the one ring to rule them all. We're really basically going to be telling that story. And I'm excited to see that. And, and this is the great thing about it is being able to dive into this world and even though the the movies plus the extended editions are four or five hours long you're spending all this time basically a whole day or so in in a world now we get to spend 10 plus hours in this world of middle earth and explore new characters that we hadn't seen before new new parts of of this realm and this universe that we haven't experienced before and i'm really excited to see what it's going to be and there's a lot more questions and expectations around this and there's a lot of pressure on amazon because this is the most expensive television show ever. I mean, this might be the most expensive production ever. It has a budget around four to five hundred million dollars just overall for about a season or two of making this show. I believe just one season alone is around four hundred fifty million dollars for ten episodes. And no, no movie other than maybe not even Avengers Endgame had that kind of budget just up by itself. 
So it's going to be interesting to see where how this show plays out. Are people wanting going to want to see this show? And how how Amazon is going to be able to judge it with subscribers. They're hoping that this is their their Game of Thrones, obviously. They're putting all the money into it. And it'll be very interesting. I, I think that you already have the built-in fan base, but you don't have Peter Jackson. You don't have any of the other characters from beforehand. You have, you have Sauron, and maybe you get some cameos, but going to be new characters, new actors, new directors. So I'm very curious to see how this all comes together. But I really like the, the title. I like where they're going with the story. But hopefully we get a trailer in the next coming months before it debuts on Amazon Prime in September 2nd. But what did you guys think about the trailer for Lord of the Rings? The Rings of Power is the title for the show. Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. But that down and out of the way, that will do it for this edition of the Sambus sale podcast once again everyone thank you so much for tuning in be sure to check out my channel for more content you can check me out on spotify apple podcast stitcher radio public soundcloud and much more also make sure to tune in on to the ambiguous podcast solutions and be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on here such as you mad bro the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis also check out goal driven professionals geared toward improving client relations return on investment and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services also check out the daily grind a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. Also, along the way, make sure to check out these other amazing shows on the podcast solutions, such as Wrestle Attic Radio, Fretzel Mania Podcast, and Midnight Showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com, also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous, and if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, when you get a chance, make sure to follow me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Pissell Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And also on Facebook at Sam Bissell. Once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, keep on screening. <laughs>